This Week at Hope Point. When we think of an earthly throne, we, we often think of domination, of fear, of, of power. But we aren't called to approach an earthly throne. We're called to approach a heavenly throne. And this throne sits not a tyrannical dictator, but a loving savior that is summarized as a throne of grace. So as we draw nearer and nearer to this throne, what should our mindset be? One of confidence. The writer here is commanding us, come boldly to the throne. Come without hesitation, put aside wavering and come. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Dan speaks to us from God's holy word. The other day I received a very honest message from a friend. And he said this, I feel like I really don't want to go to church anymore. I can't continue, Dan, on this journey of the Christian life. In fact, things keep getting worse and worse for me. None none of this was happening when I was straying. And perhaps this is your heart this morning. You are weary. You feel that you cannot continue on this Christian journey. You're trying to follow Christ. You're trying to be obedient, trying to be faithful, but things keep getting worse. And the question looming in your mind this morning might be, God, where are you? This was the exact same plight of the original audience to whom the letter of Hebrews was written. They were a group of weary Jewish believers who were suffering, who were confused, who were fearful of what the next day would hold. Things kept getting worse and worse. In fact, they were facing immense persecution from other ethnic Jews because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. The thermometer gauge of their persecution was getting so high that they were actually tempted to abandon the Christian faith altogether and go back to Judaism. The threatening message that was ringing in their ears was essentially this, you can have everything you think you can have in Jesus and Christianity in our kind of Judaism if you simply turn back on Christ and come back to your former heritage. So seeing the dilemma that these Jewish believers were in, the author of Hebrews exhorts them, persevere, press in even tighter to Jesus because he is far superior than anything that Judaism has to offer. Like a coach rallying his team in the huddle, guys, don't give up, don't give in, continue on in the faith because, and he will use this phrase 13 times in this great letter, because Jesus is better. Throughout the pages of this letter, chapter one, chapter two, you turn, the author is like a skillful lawyer presenting evidence after evidence that Jesus is far superior, far better than the Hebrew system of religion that this audience knew all too well. We see in chapter one, he argues that Jesus is better than the angels. 
He is better than the prophets. He is better than the quarterback of the team, Moses. He is a better high priest, which we'll unpack today. Not only that, but Jesus provides a better Sabbath rest. He provides a better hope in chapter seven. Jesus provides a new and better covenant in chapter eight. And last, in chapter 10, Jesus provides a better sacrifice. So when you look at the story of Hebrews, the story of Hebrews is really a story about us. Just like the original audience who would have heard these words read aloud for the first time, just like them, our own hearts are constantly tempting us to think that there is something better out there apart from Christ. That there is something out there better and more satisfying, more fulfilling than the person of Christ. So church family this morning, we really need to hear what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And in our text this morning, he is going to put before eyes three things in three verses, three things of what Jesus provides for us that we desperately, desperately need. We need his perfect priesthood. We need his perfect person. And we need, absolutely, his perfect provision. So let's look now in our text at our need for a perfect priest. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. He is telling us this is no ordinary high priest. The first thing that makes Jesus the perfect high priest is that he, and the text says it, he is God's son. In the Old Testament times, the Old Testament high priests were sons of Aaron. Aaron being established as the first high priest, and all subsequent priests would come through his lineage in the tribe of Levi. But our high priest was the very son of God. And the author wants us to remember his name. And he says it, Jesus. Jesus, whose name in the original Hebrew language, Yeshua, means savior. All the Old Testament high priests were in a sense temporary saviors. And they had this terrible, beautiful task of standing between God and man as representatives of a sinful people offering sacrifices to a holy God on their behalf, standing in the gap for the people of Israel. And although this was essential in the old covenant, all of the high priests were but faint shadows, pointers, if you will, of what was to come because there was a need, they needed a true and better and perfect high priest whose very name meant salvation, who would offer the ultimate sacrifice to his people, which was himself. 
shedding not the blood of bulls and goats, but shedding his own blood, which would erase the need for future high priests and for future sacrifices. This is where they were. Hebrews 9 tells us this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I'll never forget the story I heard back in the spring of an old missionary who had spent most of his life in the Gambia. An old man now whose face was weathered by the hot African sun, he told me of a certain unreached tribe that they had tried to reach years ago and trying to penetrate this tribe with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but how? No one had ever come to them and shown them the way of salvation. No one had ever come to them and given them a Bible and explained the scriptures. No understanding of their need for redemption. There was language barriers, cultural barriers. It seemed like a Mount Everest, but these missionaries knew that they would perish outside of Christ if they did not hear the gospel message. So they begin praying together for the right opportunity to share the story of Jesus. And one day, something absolutely amazing happened. And after witnessing it, these missionaries realized this is their chance to bridge the gospel with these lost people. They noticed that a, a boy was banished. He was removed, put outside of the camp in the village for stealing. Stealing in this culture was a heinous crime and he would die of exposure or by wild animals if someone did not intervene on his behalf. And although this tribe was primitive, they knew, they knew that justice had to be carried out. Some price had to be paid for the wrongdoing of this boy. And in their culture, the only way for him to be brought back into the camp was if his own father took his own goat and with a knife would slice the neck of this animal and with blood splurting out, with blood on his hands, the father, as a way of atonement, paying the price, would drizzle the blood drop by drop all the way back through the village to the entrance of the hut, bringing shame upon this family. But then and only then could the price be paid. Then the boy could be brought back in. As he's telling me this, I just thought about me. I thought about us. Is this not a story of us? We needed rescue. Our sins were great. We rebelled against the living God. The chasm was wide. We had been separated from him, put outside. We were far off, deserving of death. And a price had to be paid and in stepped Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And he bore our shame 
put it on himself. He offered up his own body, covering us in his blood so that we could be accepted by the Father. Not by our own good works, but by his great work for us upon the tree and that secured our eternal redemption. Now we could stop right there. <laughs> That's pretty good news. But the writer goes on. Something happened with his high priest. He said, he has passed through the heavens. Now in my study, I just kind of glazed past that. But this is a very important phrase. This is another way of saying that Jesus, our high priest, ascended into the very presence of God. While the Old Testament high priest would pass through an earthly curtain, an earthly veil, into the Holy of Holies once a year on that terrible but beautiful day of atonement to be in God's presence, our high priest has passed not through an earthly curtain, but through a heavenly curtain. And he is in the presence of God, not just on one special day, but forevermore, seated at the right hand of the Father, signifying that the work for us has been accomplished. Now, this begs the question. I'm a deep thinker. I'm not a smart thinker. But I was just asking the passage, this question I had in my mind. So Jesus ascended to be with the Father in the past, but what is he doing now in the present? Have you ever thought about that? What is he doing now in the present? You see, this was a tremendous struggle for the Jewish believers to whom this letter was written. It wasn't long ago that Christ left them. He ascended. They were used to the Messiah, the carpenter from Nazareth, seeing him, maybe touching his cloak, praying with him. But now he was gone. Where is he? Why can't he come back? And they were, that's why they were tempted to almost go back into the rituals to see and taste and touch and smell the things of the old covenant. Maybe, maybe Jesus' love for us has cooled off. Maybe he's just forgiven us in the past, but hope we make it to heaven. What is he doing for us right now? We don't have to speculate. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter seven, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus' high priestly ministry did not end 2,000 years ago upon the cross where he rescued us in the past and hopes we make it the rest of the way. No, he carries us all the way. He carries you today through the means of intercession. So when you think of intercession, it's not a word we use a lot. Someone stepping in on your behalf to plea for you, to beg for you, to pray for you. So when you think of intercession, think of prayer. But why do we need an intercessor? If our redemption has been accomplished in the past, why do we need someone interceding for us now and knowing my own heart because we continue to fail on this earth? 
But right now, Jesus is advocating for you. He is pleading on behalf of the Father for you. He is praying that your faith may not cease until you come out victorious in the end. It's a deeply calming thought to think that we have a high priest who is praying for us even when we are so negligent oftentimes in our own prayer life. Imagine this. Imagine if you heard in the next room, Jesus praying for you by name. What if you heard that? Lifting you up by name, the strong man, the mighty one, Jesus Christ. I don't think anything would be more powerful. It would change our perspective on life. And I love how Robert Murray McShane says it. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So our great high priest has sacrificed himself for us. He has ascended to the Father. He is now interceding for you and I today. And because of all this, the author tells us, he urges us, pleads with us to hold fast to our confession. Richard has preached this so much in the book of Revelation, perseverance, holding fast, don't give up. That's what he's saying, stay strong, church. Stay strong, believer, in your resolve to follow Christ. Don't give in. We have a mighty one who has sealed our redemption. And we need this perfect high priest, amen? But we also need his perfect person. And as we move into verse 15, it's as if the writer of Hebrews takes us by the hand and he leads us deeper and deeper into the very heart of Christ. As if our ear is listening to his heartbeat for sinners and sufferers. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every single respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And if you follow the logic of the writer's argument, because Jesus was tempted in every respect, keep your pulse on that, that is a huge phrase, in every way that we have been, and without giving into that sin, without succumbing to the temptations, that makes him the perfect person. Therefore, he is able to sympathize with you and I today. Had Christ given in to sin while he was on earth even once, not only would that disqualify him from being a perfect high priest, and a perfect person, but it would also disqualify him from being a perfect sympathizer. These three words, yet without sin. So easy to take this for granted. 
so easy to look past these three words, but when I think of these, I think of a banner that is lifted over a battlefield, signifying to weary soldiers, victory has been won. His sinlessness sealed our salvation. And his spotless record, get this, makes him even more sympathetic towards sufferers. Now, how is that possible? How could someone so high, so lofty, so heavenly, so clean, possibly sympathize more with fallen humanity? I'm gonna let our friend Charles Haddon Spurgeon answer that question. Sinless perfection does not make Christ less tender, but more so. Anything that is sinful hardens. And inasmuch as he was without sin, he was without the hardening influence that sin would bring to bear on a man. Have you ever thought about that? I have not. (laughs) Christ is tender-hearted towards sinners. We need the perfect person of Christ. Back in May, I lost my dad to dementia. And a couple of months before he died, I had this old 35 millimeter camera laying around. If you're under 15, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but um, I, I took it out to where they lived and um, not, not thinking any of these pictures would even be developed, and most of them weren't. They were completely black. But there's this one picture that turned out. It's the favorite, my, my favorite picture of my dad. And I remember taking that picture, and I said, Dad, smile. And in his dementia-ridden <clears throat> mind, he looked at the camera, and he gave the most calming, most peaceful smile. And I look at that picture often and I just wish, I wish my dad just could come out of the frame. He could could just come be with me again, just one more time. Miss his voice, miss his person. And this is what I think of when when I read verse 15. It's like Jesus steps out of the frame. That he comes out of the page and he, he gets in us, with us, sits next to us because he can perfectly sympathize in our pain. And in a sense, family, he has left heaven's frame. He came, he took on flesh to experience everything that you would ever experience to be called a co-sufferer with us. Now you might say this morning, You know, Dan, no no one gets me. No one understands me. He does. He gets you. The pathway of difficulty that you're on, look down and look at his footsteps because he has trodden on this path ahead of you. That should give us strength. Like a magnet, Christ's heart is drawn to your distress because he knows what it is to be thirsty, to feel the burning sensation of hunger. He knows what it is to feel shame, to be embarrassed, 
to be rejected by even his closest friends, to be slandered, to be despised. And, and, and maybe, and this one just gets me, to be misunderstood, to be falsely accused, to, to be abandoned, to feel the anguish of suffocation and torture. And he also knows what it is to feel all alone. In verse 15, I think is quite scandalous because oftentimes the false gospel we preach to ourselves is this, Jesus is with me when my life is going well. Jesus is close to me and stands by me when I feel the strongest as a Christian, when I'm at my best. But this text says the complete opposite. It's in our weaknesses, not in our strengths, that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. We have a friend in Jesus. The book of Hebrews calls him a brother. Did you know you have a loving brother who doesn't just lob down a, a pep talk from heaven, but he sits next to you in your pain. He is able to sympathize with us when life isn't going well, when our marriage isn't going well, when our fight with sin isn't going well, he can sympathize with us. When our anxious racing thoughts keep, keep us feeling isolated and all alone, he can sympathize with us. When we receive word that a precious four-year-old girl has died, it is then when he can sympathize with us. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, top five of all time for me, he says it this way. <clears throat> the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go down into pain and anguish, we are descending ever deeper into the very heart of Christ, not away from it. So in light of all of this, in light of all of this truth, in light of all of who Christ is and all that he has accomplished for us, what should we do with this glorious truth? Here's what we can't do. We can't simply look past it. We can't simply shelf our feet or wait till tomorrow to deal with this passage Verses 14 and 15 demand a response from each of us today. And verse 16 tells us what we should do. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This is an invitation for us to draw near, to, to be beckoned, to, to come closer. To, to what? A throne. When we think of an earthly throne, we, we often think of domination, of fear, of, of power. But we aren't called to approach an earthly throne. We're called to approach a heavenly throne. 
And this throne sits not a tyrannical dictator, but a loving savior that is summarized as a throne of grace. So as we draw near and near to this throne, what should our mindset be? One of confidence. The writer here is commanding us, come boldly to the throne. Come without hesitation. Put aside wavering and come. And come. There was a season in my life when I lived as if God was always angry at me. Just like I would just imagine God and just a frown on his face, a, a wagging finger, arms crossed. Dan, I was counting on you and you, you keep blowing it. I just lived in this bondage. So I never had the confidence to really come towards that throne because I was basing so much on my own performance instead of just coming. I had a faulty view of God. A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. So my question this morning is, what is stopping you from approaching this glorious throne today? Dane Ortland goes on. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. That is hopeful. Who is this Jesus? He's meek, humble, gentle. He is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary or easily exasperated, unlike me as a dad. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. So if there's any question you have in this, your mind this morning, will he still accept me? Can I, can I still come to him? I wanna remind you of a, another beautiful truth. Because of the high priest's perfect work on your behalf, you now have unlimited access to the Father. This is something that the high priests of old longed for, to be always in the presence of God, but they didn't have that access. But when Jesus died, the gospels tell us that the, the temple curtain, the veil was torn in half, signifying that we now have entry, access into the throne room, into the holy holies, into the presence of God forevermore. I love how Tim Keller says this. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. If you're in Christ this morning, you're a child of the king. Trust me, my kids, they'll knock on the door at three in the morning. They know what they're getting from their dad. They don't hesitate, they're knocking. Dad, let me in, I'm thirsty. We have this access to come to him. So as we come to this throne, we find our perfect provision. 
Come with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our perfect provision, mercy, grace, and help. These words paint a picture, an image of Christ himself. He embodies mercy, grace, and help. He knows what to give us in the most dire moment that we need it the most. I don't even know if that made sense, but you get the idea. The old saying holds true, he may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. Sometimes you might think God is, he's leaving you hanging by a thread and he shows up in the crisis hour. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the gospel begins when we come to the end of ourselves. Now, perhaps you're here today and you are not a Christian. We're so glad that you're here. And you're exhausted. You've spent your life trying to find purpose, weighed down by guilt, weighed down by finding better fulfillment that is out there. And you've noticed that it is a mirage in a desert. It has drifted away. Friends, if that is you this morning, look unto Christ and be saved. Find salvation. When Jesus told us in the gospels what his heart is like, he, he, he kind of pulled the, the curtain up. Look into my heart. I have a yoke that is easy and a burden in his light. I kid you not, a man called me a couple months ago out of the blue. The caller ID said, Los Angeles. I don't know why I picked up the phone, <laughs> but I did. And he said, I've just moved here from Los Angeles. Pastor, I've been a practicing Jew much of my life. My rabbi said there are 613 Mosaic commandments. Pastor, I'm tired. I can't keep up with them all. How do you become a Christian? What do I need to do? That's a softball pitch right down the plate for a pastor. And I didn't give him a great answer. But I wish if I could go back, I would have said this. Brother, draw near to the throne of grace. For you're gonna find a savior there who offers you mercy, who offers you grace, who offers you help when you need it most. He made a way for you to be in relationship to God. But here's your ticket in to that throne, desperation. You need to see your plight, to see that you need a savior, to see your helplessness. And I would encourage you, repent and believe the gospel. This is good news. Now, maybe you're here today and you are a Christian. And you know about this perfect provision. You know all about the perfect priest and the perfect person that he was. But if you're being honest with yourself, your sense of wonder and amazement for Jesus has faded. I can speak from experience. Maybe your heart is not stirred for him like it used to be. So as I close, I wanna strengthen your heart this morning with story of a man who 
himself struggled to reclaim the wonder and the beauty of our Savior. Let's go back in time. It was 18th century England. And a group of rowdy teenagers decided that they wanted to stir up trouble at this local town gathering. There was a famous preacher who was coming through town who had preached to the multitudes and his name was George Whitfield. Uh-oh. <laughs> the gang of boys didn't cause too much commotion because they were in awestruck wonder of the powerful oratory skills of this thundering open air evangelist as he preached to the crowds. His text that night was this, Matthew 3, 7. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, Dylan is our student pastor. Would he preach that? We'll see. <laughs> but while hearing these penetrating words, one of the boys by the name of Robert Robinson fell under deep conviction of sin and he eventually gave his life to Christ. He set out to be a Methodist preacher. And in 1757, at the age of 22, he wrote a hymn that expressed his newfound hope and salvation. He entitled this hymn, Come Thou Fount. But as his life went on, he began to drift away. Spending some of his last years disillusioned, calloused, falling into sensuality, his love for the Savior that used to burn as hot as an iron had now cooled off and had all but disappeared. He had become a lonely shell of the man that he once was. So on the day in the town, one day as he was walking, he heard the clip-clop clip -clop of horse's hooves with a horse-drawn carriage. He lifted his hand to hail the carriage and it stopped. He climbed in and he sat across a young woman who was on her way to church. Robert Robinson introduced himself to the young woman and he noticed when he said his name, a strange look came over her face. She said, that's an interesting coincidence. She reached into her purse and pulled out this small book with writings that she had in it that she was reading on the way to church. She opened it up and gave it to him. I was just reading a verse by a poet by the name of Robert Robinson. Is that you? He took the book nodding. Yes, I wrote these words long ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine in a carriage with the man who wrote these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was so absorbed in the words he was reading the words that would one day be set to music and become a great hymn of faith. These are the words he read. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. And as he read on in this hymn, tears stung his eyes as he got near the bottom of the page and he read these words. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. He looked at the woman and he said, Madame, I'm the poor and happy 
man who wrote these lines, I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had back then. I have lived out these words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But the young woman responded by saying, but you also wrote something else. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. The Lord used this encounter to turn his wandering heart back to God. So church this morning, streams of mercy, never ceasing. This is our perfect provision offered to you from a perfect person who is our perfect high priest. Draw near to him today. Jesus is better. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.